for this morning. <laughs> Having uh, just returned from Israel, I want to share a small moment with you that has a large idea. See, uh, we were in Israel celebrating, as a delegation, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the UJA Federation of Greater Toronto. And the first day of this delegation was capped off with everyone leaving Tel Aviv to head to Yerushalayim to go to Jerusalem. The plan was to have each of the buses disembark at different locations in Jerusalem, and then everyone recite a Shekhiana with Thanksgiving blessing to celebrate their arrival in the old city. And I chose the point of our disembarkation to be Mishkinot Shananim, the beautiful artist colony that is just outside the old city walls that had been planned by Edmund Rothschild 150 years ago. In the center of the colony is this iconic windmill that was used to grind wheat so that they could make their bread locally without having to go back into the walled city for their flour. So our bus arrives and we step down and head to the plaza that offers one of the most stunning views of the old city. With the western walls of the old city facing, you can see far past the city into Mount Scopus and beyond. And what were people doing? They were fumbling with their phones to take pictures. And when one person standing next to me moans that their phone had run out of power and they were upset that they couldn't take a picture, and I said to them, it's a good thing that you're not busy taking a picture. This way you'll have a, mem a memory of it. Which is such a strange thing to say, isn't it? I mean, after all, go to any sporting event or a concert, a wedding and a rally, and people are holding up phones and they're taking pictures. And for the record... When the Ruach singers are out and doing their thing, more than a few people have whipped out their phones to take a picture and record. And for the record, I don't condone it. For the record, I don't condone it. And I know that there are technical reasons why we shouldn't be using electric, electronic gadgets in the synagogue on Shabbat, but there is also a thoughtful one too. Because when you take a picture, you don't record a memory. All you've done is taken an image of a moment, and instead of experiencing the moment, of actually seeing it, you took a 10-ounce piece of plastic and glass and aluminum and put it between yourself and what you really wanted to connect to. But don't take my word for it. Research has shown time and time again that people at the same event, that those who take pictures actually remember less as opposed to people who just simply stood there and watched, which is as good an argument as you'll ever see to put your phones down. But I'll put it this way. Have you ever been to the live performance of a band whose music you didn't really love before whenever you heard their music on the radio? Or maybe you heard the live performance of a band that you love, but only listened to their studio recordings. But when you heard them play live, and like most people, you now prefer the live versions of the songs you heard as opposed to the studio version. 
which is a remarkable thing when you think about it because the versions produced in the studio are perfect. And the ones that you hear live have distortions and ill-timed notes and cracked-in voices and noise from the audience. But the reason why you prefer the live copy as opposed to the studio copy is because the live copy reminds you not only of what you heard, but what you felt. Having returned from Israel, I want to share with you some stories of what I have seen and more importantly, what I feel. Because what sparkles in my mind most about Israel is what it says about us, not just as Jews, but as people. A few years back, I met with Ephraim Cantor, who had just retired as the head of Israel's Water Authority. He told me that just after the War of Independence, Cantor was a young engineer who was tasked with escorting a number of dignitaries from the International Monetary Fund. Israel was hard at look, looking for financing to complete the waterway that would deliver water to all parts of the country. The plan was to modernize the waterway into the city of Tzfat. Tzfat is in northern Israel, and it sits high on top of the hills. So for three days, he takes them all around, showing the care and complexity that the young state has for its water resources. And by the third day, he starts getting worried because no one is asking him any questions. All he does is talk, they nod, and all then go. So finally, he goes to the director of the water authority to share his concerns. And the director tells him not to worry, just do your job, and everything will be just fine. And at the end of the fourth day, which is the final day, one of the delegates finally turns to this young Dr. Cantor and says to him, Doctor, you have proven yourself to be a bright and industrious young man, but all the plans that you have to bring water to the city on top of a mountain has me confused. Wouldn't it be more simple to simply take the Jews off of the mountain and bring them down to the surface? And Dr. Cantor didn't know what to answer because the thought never crossed his mind. The truth is, two people looked at the same thing, but they saw two entirely different things because what they saw made each of them feel differently. When I heard that story, I learned that the world is given in one way, but we have the ability, even the obligation, to make it into something else and not accept the way that things are. That we bring the water up to the mountain because God has made us able. And our hearts have made us willing. Which is to say that what we see is not what need be. So the Torah portion that we read this morning speaks of the deaths of both Abraham and Sarah. We hear little of what takes place at Abraham's funeral, but when Sarah dies, the Torah gives us a clear rendering of what happens. A grave is purchased. She is brought to graveside, and before she is lowered, and mentioned for the first time ever in the entire biblical record, we are told that Sarah is eulogized. Consider that when Eve dies, there's no eulogy, same as it is for Adam. When Noah dies, we hear no one giving a eulogy. But when Sarah takes her last breath and is taken from this world, it is Abraham who refuses to let go until he has spoken words to her memory. Abraham, the person who believes the unseen is more powerful than the seen. 
Abraham, the one who worships the invisible, uses unspoken, uses spoken, unwritten words to capture the invisible beauty of the woman that he loves. Abraham speaks not of things. Abraham speaks of what he feels. This morning, our question is not about what we see in life, but about how what we see makes us feel. And we will look to answer this together now for Musaf with song and prayer and thought. So I started off by saying to you that we were going to talk about the things that we see and how they make us feel. So another story from Israel. Well, I was in Israel once for a Yizkor. Now Yizkor, for those of you who don't know, is the memorial prayer that's recited for people that we have loved and lost. The particular tradition in Israel is that everyone stays in the sanctuary during Yizkor, which isn't surprising, I think. Because after all, Israel is a country of compulsory military service. And it's hard to imagine that everyone hasn't lost at least someone that they love. So there I was in the synagogue, reciting Yizkor in the sanctuary. And not far from me, I saw it was an elderly gentleman who was wearing a short sleeve shirt. There was a tattoo, a tattoo on his left arm that clearly identified him as a survivor of the Shoah of the Holocaust. As the Yizkor service began and everyone stood up, there was a whole group of young people who stood up and left the sanctuary. And I saw this elderly man, his head dropped into his chest. He rocked his head back and forth and he let out a huge sigh. At the end of the service, I went over to him and I imagine that the reason why he was upset and that he lowered his head as the thought of seeing all these people pick up and leave the sanctuary at the moment that we're remembering all the people who are no longer alive. So over to him I go and I ask him if he's okay. And he says, I am. And then he goes on to say to me, never in my life could I have possibly imagined that I would live long enough to see that the entire sanctuary wouldn't have to stay in when we recited Yizker. That these, these young people don't have someone to mourn. At that moment, I realized the lesson was that Jewish history is not a story condemned to to tragedy or pain. That the story of the Jewish people can also be one that is filled with great aspiration and great joy and great help. All these stories that I mentioned to you from Israel today, I think also tells us a foundational idea about Judaism. One of the great arguments that Judaism makes to the world. And that is, Judaism doesn't believe that we worship things. We don't worship the Torah scrolls. We don't worship the synagogue. This is not holy space. We don't believe that. What Judaism venerates are not things. Judaism worships feelings. It is feelings that matter the most. So here you are on Shabbat morning, and maybe you know how to read Hebrew. Maybe you don't. Maybe you know how to read Hebrew, but you don't really understand what you read. None of it actually matters, the truth. Because in this morning, you have seen and you have heard. But most importantly, I hope what you remember the most is how you felt. 
Shabbat Shalom.